Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. All around us are invisible waves. I don't know if you paid attention in science class. Um, I never quite understood all of that. I just I saw the lines on the page. They said there were waves in the air, and I said, okay. But if you put out a metal antenna and you've got the right kind of device, you can pick up somebody's voice from who knows where. FM radio, AM radio. The kids are like, what? I thought it was satellite radio. Yes, it is satellite radio. I thought it was on my phone. Yes, it is on your phone. But somehow you hear that, right? Sound waves are in the air. Radio waves are in the air. All of these things. The air is full of them, right? Back in the day... It was only Captain Kirk that would pull out that little uh, wireless device and go, doo, 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 Captain's log, you know, and talk to Spock or whoever he was talking to at the time. But now they're everywhere. We talk around the world. We can video. How does that all work? Well, there's waves everywhere, going every which way. We can listen to it on the radio or in the car. Or we can watch a TV, a uh, football game on TV, where as you're listening to it on the radio, hearing it, you can turn on your TV and it comes to life in full living color. Of course, there may be a few of you this morning. It started out black and white or nothing at all. But we can see it in full living color. The invisible becomes visible and alive. When we think about God and his many attributes and characteristics, he is invisible. The Bible says that no man has seen God at any time. He's a spirit, that the air is thick with his presence. He is always everywhere present. But the problem with the human eye that we can't see him, so at some point, he made himself visible. First John chapter, excuse me, yeah, not first John, just John chapter one, verse 14, says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the word made flesh, eyewitnesses, his disciples, one of those being John, penned these words in verse 14, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. He lived among us. We saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. The only son from the father. In this moment where the revelation of Jesus Christ makes known the glory of God. Jesus would say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. In John chapter 11, we have this story, one of the greatest stories for all time, in the story of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Jesus. John chapter 11, verse 17, we've read it once already this morning, so I won't read it again. I'll just simply ask that you go to the Lord with me in prayer for the rest of our time. Lord, as we come before you this morning and as we have in time of prayer and in time of worship, Lord, I pray now that what we do not know you would teach us. And what we are not, that you would make us for your glory and our good. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our time of need to remember that you alone are God, that there is no other God but you. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember that in Christ are the keys of life, the conqueror of death, that in Christ you are the giver of life. And the guarantee 
of the resurrection with the currency of heaven that is grace and mercy. We have praised you, Lord, and we look to hear from you now. In Jesus' name we come to you. Amen. So let's take a look at this life-changing moment here, in, starting in verse 17. Jesus had found out from a messenger that uh, his friend Lazarus had, was, was sick. Martha and Mary had sent that messenger on a couple of days ahead. The purpose of this story, though, we find actually in verse 4. If you back up to chapter 11, verse 4, he hears the news that Lazarus is ill. Then Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So what we read in John chapter 11, what we see in the story of Lazarus and his calling out of the grave is for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. When we think of the glory of God, I want you to think of the glory of God as God making known his power, making known his love, making known his wisdom, so that we as humanity can see and proclaim that truth. This is what John is doing. John was a witness to these events of chapter 11. He saw the glory of God on display through Jesus the Son. This is his testimony. He has written these things so that by hearing them, you may believe in the Son of God and find life in him. So the Son of God, Jesus, would be glorified in this moment. John gives us some important details of the event that we need to pay attention to. In verse 17, he says, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. That is not a surprise to Jesus. I don't think he's shocked by this. I don't think he's, he's surprised by it whatsoever. There's a chronological insight that John provides for us here. And it taking several days for Jesus to get there, it puts Lazarus in the tomb on the fourth day after he had died. Okay? The fourth day is stressed by John to help us grasp the size of what is about to happen later on in the story. There was a thought in Jewish life that the spirit of the deceased would hang around the body for about three days. But when the body would change colors, finally changing colors on that, between that third and fourth day, that spirit that was anticipating, the soul of the person anticipating a, a possible return back into the body on that fourth day was shut out and locked out. Now that is not a biblical teaching. That is nowhere found in scripture. All right? I am not saying that's what happens when you die. All right, The preacher didn't say that. This is what history tells us. It is not a biblical view, all right? But in their practice and in their thought, that fourth day was the hardest day because they believed at that point that the soul of the person had finally left the body, okay? Also, the four days allowed time for all the professional mourners to arrive. That's right. They assisted in overstating the obvious. They assisted in the crying and grieving of the lost of the dead deceased family member. When Mary would cry, the professional, professional mourners would cry and they would wail. When she stopped, they would stop. They were there to assist and to, show how, to help show how important this loved one was. And so here comes Jesus onto the scene the fourth day. 
Was Jesus setting it all up? Well, he delayed his departure for reasons we don't know. John doesn't give us that insight. Jesus didn't reveal it, and I guess the Lord didn't want it in the Word. But we have to trust that Jesus knew what was happening. We have to trust that Jesus knew exactly what was going on, because as we've already heard from John in John's Gospel, Jesus didn't do anything he didn't see the Father doing. He did what the Father did. He, did, he said what the Father was saying. And so Jesus is not acting outside of God's will in this. Jesus knew what was happening. He had to know what was going on. Because he said so in verse 4, this is for the glory of God and for the Son of God to display it. He's not playing a cruel joke. What Jesus is going to do here is make yet another truth claim. Another claim to the truth of who he is and who God is. And that he will live it out for all to see the glory of God in Bethany on that day. When life gets tough, friends, we have to understand, we have to trust that God is working through that. We have to trust that God is at work always around us. And we are to look for that, but to know that as he is working, he is working for our good, but most important, he's working for his glory through our lives, through our hardship, through our trial. We're going to walk through those things together. And we're told in Scripture, consider it pure joy when you face trials, right? It doesn't feel joyous at the time. We don't go laughing hysterically as we face a trial. It's hard. It's difficult. It can be depressing. But we always remember that when it's tough like that, we trust that God is working it out for our good and his glory. And so Martha had heard that Jesus was coming. Verse 20, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. It's kind of true to form there for Martha and Mary, isn't it? If you remember their story from the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus visited their home, Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his teaching, and Martha was real busy trying to get everything ready to be a good hostess, trying to get the food ready. She's not listening to what Jesus is saying. She's trying to get food ready for the master. She thought that that was more important to be a good host than those things. But here's Mary sitting there, and she comes, and Martha complains to Jesus. I'm doing all this work. Well, she's just sitting there. And Jesus says, Martha, Mary has chosen what's better. She's chosen to sit at the feet of the master and listen. We find it similar again, another kind of situation where Martha is running out to Jesus this time. Not to complain about Mary. Mary's doing what she should be doing and sitting by the body of her brother. That's what they did. But it's customary for those that are grieving to be sitting next to his side. And what John is giving us here is a detail of the weight of this loss for Martha and Mary. And for Jesus too. He will tell us in verse 35 that Jesus wept over this moment. I could go into a whole nother, a whole nother sermon and talk about why he's weeping. I think he's weeping. I'll tell you real quick my thought behind why he's weeping in verse 35. Yeah, he hurts for Martha and Mary. Of course, he felt our pain. He knows our pain. I think it's because the wages of sin is death and he knows that he's about to have to pay for that. He's weeping with the damage that sin has done to humanity. But we get back into this particular story here. 
John wants you to know that the great loss for Martha and Mary, it's not just the loss of a brother. That's hard. But most likely, Lazarus is the one who's working and earning a living. How would they make it? But what Jesus has come to do, he's come to make a promise. He's come to make a claim, a truth claim of who he is and show the people in Bethany that day who he is and who his father is and to display the glory of God. So listen to the promise of Jesus. Upon Mary's approach to Jesus, verse 21, they enter into conversation and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Stop right there for a moment and just think about before we get to that promise that some take this verse as Martha rebuking Jesus. <laughs> I find that hard to rebuke the Son of God, but some make a, a claim to that. I, I don't think that's what she's doing. I think what you hear from Martha is not a rebuke, but rather the overflow of her heart and grief. She believes that Jesus could have done something in that moment had he been there. If he had been able to make it in time, he could have done something. She's wishing or hoping it could have been different for her brother. I mean, who of us have not lost someone wishes or hopes that it could have been different for them, that they wouldn't have had to suffer? But given the time of travel, that where Jesus was, the time and the slowness of the journey, I mean, you can't send a text message back then and get it like that. He's not pulling out a little recorder and sending a message or, you know, they even homing pigeons. It just took time. It took days to travel. Information was slow. Martha would have known it was next to impossible for Jesus to have arrived on time and in time. But verse 22, she says, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When you read from Martha, it's like watching a, a pendulum swing back and forth. You ever watch one of those? You kind of get in this little dazed state. My favorite one, it's not really a pendulum, but I love those, you know, it's like the five little silver balls that boop, 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 back and forth. And you sit there, I can be entertained all day. I'm a really simple man. But look at this pendulum. On one side, you've got hope. She swings back to the other side and then grief. Back and forth. Hope, grief, hope, grief. And back and forth she swings. Friends, she's aware of the teaching of Jesus. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were some of his closest friends. Some of the signs that he had already worked, she most likely witnessed. She has a faith, a trust that at the very, there's a, a slight a, a possibility that Jesus could do something in this moment. But she doesn't know what. She just has this faith, this trust, because she says, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. When I think of the one who is in heaven interceding for his bride, this is my hope. This is my trust. Jesus, whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's the one interceding for us. Jesus loves his church. He loves his bride. He prays for her. This is why when we come and we worship and we, we pray, this is why we come to him. 
And this is why we pray to the Father through Jesus the Son. It's the same truth that Martha just claimed. I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Faith of a mustard seed. Verse 22 is a great faith claim, a, a truth claim by Martha. I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But then if you look at the big picture, here she is. She makes such a strong statement of faith. Jesus, I know whatever you ask, God will give you. But in verse 39, there's an interesting, uh, different side. Like here she is on verse 22. Hope, whatever you ask God, God will give you. And then the pendulum swings back by verse 39 when Jesus says, take the stone away. In verse 39, she says, uh, Jesus, point of order. He's been in there four days. He's going to stink. She's, she's not quite catching on yet what is about to happen. And it plays out for us like this in verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul breaks out into doxology, he says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. We love to proclaim great scriptures of truth like that. We know that God is at work. We know that he is able to do so much more than we would ever ask or think or imagine. And when Jesus calls us out, We think what he's calling us to do for his kingdom is impossible. And so we turn away, we walk away, we shrink back into our little Christian turtle shell to stay safe. That's how it works so often with us. We forget who we're talking to. We forget who we're praying to. We forget who we've been called to serve. Or in Martha's case, we don't fully grasp yet who we're dealing with. This Jesus. And so later there in verse 39, Jesus says, take that stone away. Martha says, Martha has said, I know whatever you ask from God. In verse 22, God will give you. And now, Lord, by this time, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead for four days. Lord, I know you can do whatever you want, but wait, he's going to stink. What Hendrickson says about this is he says, in the heart of Martha, the darkness of grief and the light of hope are engaged in deadly combat. We need to see that in this moment in Martha. A woman who deeply loved her brother, broken by his loss, and yet on the other side is a faithful disciple of Jesus with a growing, deep reverence and faith for her Lord Jesus. Back to verse 23, Jesus responded to her statement Whatever you ask from God, God will give you. He responds and says to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. This certainly would have been a startling response for Martha. Perhaps it's reignited that little spark of hope in her heart. But then her response tells us where she's at. Not thinking about the immediate moment that Jesus would raise Lazarus, but looking to a future resurrection, about which she is not wrong. What she says in verse 24, she is not wrong. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She acknowledged what the Pharisees believed to be true. She acknowledged that there would be a real bodily, physical resurrection at the end of time. It was a very popular teaching back then. There's another group called the Sadducees that did not believe that. And they were in the same group as the Pharisees. And they often fought against and argued against each other over that very subject. The resurrection. But her heart, Martha's heart, doused by doubt, maybe even a bit of of despair in there, we see it coming out in her. Friends, when we lose someone, our heart swings back and forth between grief and hope. One minute you can't stop crying because the pain of the loss is so absolutely overwhelming and you see no way out. But then in a moment, the Spirit of God speaks to those who are believers some biblical truth. And that biblical truth reignites within our heart as the Spirit lifts you back into a place of hope to remember that day that is coming. A day when Christ returns, a day when the resurrection will happen. And so back and forth, Martha went, back and forth, we go. But here it's as if Jesus is going to stoke the fire of hope in her heart when he makes one of the greatest statements in the New Testament, in all of Scripture. And this statement leads us to the all-important question that Jesus will ask of Martha and that he will ask of you today. And what he states in verse 25 is the entire reason Jesus came for this moment. Look again. He will rise again, verse 24, in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Fifth of the seven I am statements in John. You should look for those sometime. Maybe I'll preach a series on it someday in the future. They're fascinating statements. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the gate. I'm the bread of life. Here is I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, this is the big truth right here that challenges our friends and our family today in the 21st century because it is such a big truth claim. Since postmodernism came around, people don't like to deal with big truth claims or they'll follow some other truth claim that is anything but Jesus. And there are fewer and fewer growing in our own nation, especially even in our own community, who believe this statement by Jesus and it is our job to make it known. There are quite a few folks that believe that death is simply the end of everything. Some will hope to be reincarnated. Others will hope to be good enough to get into heaven and have a a nice life up in heaven with little wings and a halo. Hallmark has gotten that wrong, by the way. People are pursuing in their life to leave a legacy for those who follow But friends, in the church, what legacy do we have but the gospel of Jesus? This is not my story. My legacy 
My legacy is no different than that dead man Lazarus there in the tomb. My legacy is fallen. His legacy is glorious. And all I've got is Jesus. That's all any of us have is Jesus. And so here Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He didn't say, I can, I can raise people and I can have a life. That's not what he said. He didn't say, I can give you more wealth. He didn't say, I can give you what you want. I can make you what you want. He said, I am the resurrection. I am life. He embodied that. He made the glory of God known through that. Our hope, friends, is not in an event. It's not a theory. Our hope is a person. He doesn't have a life. He is life. Everything about Jesus is life. You and I can lose our life. He cannot and will not lose his life. The Bible says he willingly laid it down so that you could have eternal life. And the resurrection is the proof that death could not take life from him. It could not keep him in the grave. Friends, this Jesus is the wellspring of life. He is the source, the cause, and the fountain of our resurrection and our everlasting life that we look forward to. If Jesus is out of the picture, then only death remains. But Jesus, with him there, resurrection and life is assured to the glory of God. And Jesus continued in verse 25 and 26, this all-important question, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Well, that's right before the question. So beyond the resurrection, Jesus is life. He is the resurrection. So that if you believe in him, even though you die, you will experience the power of that resurrection when Christ returns. Whoever experiences that resurrection, John says, will also have eternal life, all from Jesus. So the miracle that happens in verses 38 through 44 is introduced, it's illuminated so that as it occurs, it will be viewed not as the end of all things, but rather an illustration of what Christ desires to do through everyone who believes. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We are dead men walking. But when God has given through his grace his son Jesus Christ at the cross, that by believing in Christ, we are awakened, we are made alive together with Christ. It's just as if when he calls you to his son, because God woos you into salvation, he, he brings you, he calls you. We can't come to him on our own. He calls us into salvation. And as he does that, it's almost like Jesus is giving us this picture here when he calls Lazarus from the dead. That's exactly what happened. We come out of the dead. We are made alive with Christ. I am no longer dead in my sin, but I am alive with Christ. I have a life eternal, and it's a beautiful, glorious thing to God's glory, not my own. There is Jesus and only Jesus. It's exactly what he told Nicodemus. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is what Christ has come to do. The Bible says we're as dead as old Lazarus in the tomb. But when he calls us and we respond in faith and trusting in Jesus day after day. Listen, life ain't like Burger King where you want it, you have it your way, okay? We all want it that way, but that's not how it works. 
We can't just go through life just doing it like Nike says. It doesn't work that way. The only the glory of God would work in such a way to bring forth life out of death. So then we come to that all-important question of verse 26 that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? That is the ultimate question of life. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe Jesus Christ has died on the cross for your sins and that God raised him up on the third day, that by trusting in him, you would have eternal life and forgiveness of sins. Do you believe this? And here's what Martha's reply was. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ. I believe you are the Messiah. That means she believes he was the redeemer promised back in Genesis 3.15. She believes he's the one that's been promised from generation after generation. From Noah, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, on down the line. The one that Moses spoke of. There'll be a prophet greater than I. This is the one. He is the one. And when she says, yes, Lord, I believe, that I believe is in the perfect tense, which means I have believed. For Martha, it is a settled conviction. She doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus, but her confession, Hendrickson said, is positive, heroic, and comprehensive. For what she knows, she believes all there is to know about Jesus, and she trusts in Jesus. Yes, you are the resurrection and the life. There's no way that she understood all of the theology wrapped up in that. But she had a simple faith and a simple trust in Jesus. Let me tell you what happens when you trust in Jesus. You begin to experience life and you receive the security of the resurrection. And when you trust in Jesus, it becomes a settled conviction. Yes, Lord, you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of God. And all of the story is the glorious ending as Jesus wept with Mary and prayed to his father that the people would witness the glory of his father in this moment. And Jesus cried out, Lazarus, Come out. King James Version. Lazarus, come forth. If you're a fan of Blue Bloods, you know what comes next. Lazarus, forthwith. They always say that in that show. Forthwith. People need what we read about today. People need Jesus. You might be one of those this morning. You need a resurrector. You need a redeemer. Jesus is that guarantee. You need one who reigns over death in the grave. You need one that has looked temptation in the eye and said, you shall not pass. You need the one who was without sin yet died in your place for your sin and mine. You need the one that looked death in the grave and said, hasta la vista, baby. You need him. You need the one who has looked it in the eye and has overcome it by the glory, for the glory of God. And the only one that's left standing at the end of the day is Jesus. Only Jesus, the only one who could bring Lazarus from the grave, the only one who could help Martha and Mary, the only one that can help you today is the one that called him out, Jesus. And the question for you is, do you believe this? Do you trust him? Is your answer today, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Friend, Jesus is calling today. He's calling you out of the deadness of your sins. Come out. He's calling you out of despair. Come forth. He's calling you to life forthwith. He's calling you. Come out. 
And I love what Jesus says at the end of that. He says, come out, unbind him death, and let him go. John chapter 6 says, no one can come to to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Friend, this morning, if you fail to grasp the deadness, the sinfulness and helplessness that you are in without Christ, you will never take his grace and mercy, which brings life. You must trust and say, yes, Lord, I trust you. You don't have to know all the answers. That's what growing in Christ's likeness is. You you come to know more of his truth and become more like him. But the question today is, will you trust him? Jesus and only. Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord.